From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. This blending of religiosity with political leadership can be in the person's own self-image or it can be completely cynical. But what happens then, according to Freud, is that all of us have a conscience or a superego. We hand it over in our minds to that leader to tell us now what's right and wrong. And we don't have that burden of having to figure it out for ourselves. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome our guest, the Reverend Dr. Pamela Cooper-White, She just completed a term as academic dean at Union Theological Seminary in New York, where she holds the Christiane Brooks Johnson Professor Chair of Psychology and Religion. She holds PhDs from Harvard University and the Institute for Clinical Social Work. She's published 10 books and over 100 scholarly articles. She's a certified pastoral psychotherapist in the Association for Clinical Pastoral Education. She is an ordained Episcopal priest and a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, Why People Are Drawn In and How to Talk Across the Divide. Professor Pamela Cooper-White, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. So in order to get into this conversation, I'd like to do what I call setting the table here. And I want to dive right in to this term that's there front and center on your book, this idea of Christian nationalism. And I wonder if we could start by differentiating this term nationalism from another term that my listeners might be familiar with, the idea of patriotism. How are these two things different? Okay, well, let me start with patriotism. Patriotism is love of country, end of statement. And we all may feel love for the country that we grew up in, that we were born in. We may hang a flag of our nation on our door because we want to indicate that we are happy to be in this nation and we respect the nation. Nationalism, on the other hand, is a fight for ethnic superiority. Now, this will be my definition, which will be maybe a little more spiky than some sociologists would say, but I believe Christian nationalism is a social and political movement with the goal of restoring the United States to a fictional origin as a Christian nation, with a not at all fictional origin in white masculine supremacy. So it's white nationalism cloaked in an extreme and distorted right-wing version of Christianity. And because it poses itself as a fight for ethnic superiority and power, it can lead easily to violence and even at its worst can be genocidal. And this is true of nationalisms around the world, not just American Christian nationalism or American nationalism. Well, and you've already begun to gesture in this direction from the definition of nationalism into this idea of Christian nationalism. 
I wonder if you could help to line out that bridge for me and my listeners. So when we're talking specifically about Christian nationalism, so a moment ago you said that nationalism is a fight for ethnic superiority. How does Christian nationalism take that fight for ethnic superiority and begin to amplify it and deepen it? Well, the origins of Christian nationalism, you could count back, say, to the Reagan era for one iteration of it, but all the way back actually to the Confederacy in another era and back to American Christian revivalism even earlier. So there's been a strong strand of American particularism that has been promoted within Christian churches, particularly conservative theological Christian churches, evangelical churches. And as of right now, for example, 88% of Christian nationalists are white evangelical Protestants. And among white evangelical Protestants, 84% agree with Christian nationalist ideas. That's not to say that mainline or liberal Protestant churches do not have Christian nationalist adherence in them, or that other ethnic groups do not also have adherence to Christian nationalism in them, but the vast majority of Christian nationalists in the United States are white evangelical Protestants. Now, in your book, you make a distinction between, for the reader, between qualitative and quantitative ways of assessing these kinds of things. So I want to make sure that I'm understanding when you say that 88% of white evangelicals are Christian nationalists, are they identifying themselves in this way, or are they meeting some kind of threshold criteria that allows them to be classified as Christian nationalists? How are we arriving at those numbers? There's been actually now three major large-scale studies of this. There was only one available to me when I wrote the book back in 2020, published by sociologists Whitehead and Perry, based on primarily questions from the Baylor Religion Study and also a University of Chicago general social survey. Since that time, another group of researchers, McDaniel and his colleagues, revisited these with many of the same results. And very recently, just last month in February of 23, PRRI and the Brookings Institute did a survey of over 5,600 people across all 50 states. And they used the same method, but refined the instrument a little bit. So in earlier surveys, the questions that people were asked to agree or disagree with on a scale of one to five were the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. The federal government should advocate Christian values. The federal government should enforce strict separation of church and state, and that was reverse coded. So they were looking for people who said, no, church and state should be combined. The federal government should allow the display of religious symbols in public spaces. The success of the United States is part of God's plan, and the federal government should allow prayer in public schools. Now, this most recent study refined those statements and came up with five slightly different but sharper statements for people to disagree with or agree with. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Pamela Cooper-White. She is a professor at Union Theological Seminary, an ordained Episcopal priest, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, and a certified pastoral psychotherapist in the Association for Clinical Pastoral Education. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, why people are drawn in and how they talk across the divide. Well, Dr. Cooper-White, 
I want to stay on this for a moment because we're defining Christian nationalism and we're talking about some of the characteristics of a Christian nationalist. But I imagine that if we were to sit someone down who would be identified using these criteria as a Christian nationalist, they would look at us blankly and say, no, I'm just a Christian. It's these others who diverge from nationalism who are false Christians in some way. And so I just want to make sure when I characterize it that way, am I caricaturing or am I being accurate about the way that some of these people who are Christian nationalists understand themselves to be? I think that's right. Although just very recently, people, some of the most extreme people in this movement, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, have begun to adopt the label of Christian nationalist proudly. Formerly, most Christian nationalists would not describe themselves that way, but it is that they self-reported as agreeing or disagreeing with these particular statements, and that it was these sociologists who agreed that these would be the statements that best represented what the movement seems to be saying publicly all the time. I think you're right that many of the self-identified Christians who fall into this category would say that it is those of us who have more liberal leanings who are not true Christians, because one of the features, of course, of all evangelicalism to some degree or another is that it is our job to convert people to Christianity, that everyone should bow the knee before Jesus Christ and take Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so if you don't understand your Christianity that way, Many would say that you're not a Christian at all. So it's not surprising then that there's such a correlation between white evangelical Christians and Christian nationalism because they are both movements that powerfully want to convert people from one point of view and one religious identity, but also a political identity into their political identity. And they don't see much room for variation on that, if at all. And you're making a distinction in this conversation, which I believe you also make in your book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, between white evangelicals and maybe evangelicalism more broadly, and in particular, African-American or black evangelicals. I wonder if you could talk to us about that distinction and why you're making it. Yeah, that's a very important point. Thank you for asking that question. In Whitehead and Perry's study, they were surprised to see that about two-thirds of Black Protestant church members agree with the idea that Christian values should be the ruling morality of the nation. But what is meant by it is very different. And I think that's one of the reasons why in the recent study they have sharpened some of these statements, because in the Black church, going all the way back to its founding, yes, politics were an important part of faith because it was politics, the political arena, where people were going to be able to find their freedom. And so following the Gospels, following the messages and the teachings of Jesus Christ, they are seeing politics as inseparable from your daily walk in life. However, what they mean by that is pretty much the opposite of what the most extreme Christian nationalists mean by it, because what they mean by it is to work for social justice and to work for equality and to work for the kind of a society in which diversity is cherished and valued. And 
Because we have these distinctions then between African-American evangelicals and white evangelicals and the ways that you've begun to line this out about how they think about politics, some of the overlaps and some of the differences, is there more common ground, I guess is what I would want to ask, between white evangelicals and African-American evangelicals? Or is there more common ground between African-American evangelicals and the kind of mainline Christians Like, where would that set of circles overlap? Right. Well, I think theologically, you would find most Black church adherents to be more conservative theologically in terms of accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, perhaps using the term born again, perhaps considering that Christianity is the best religion or the only true religion. However, It's when you get into the ethical work of your faith that we would see a lot of overlap. And in fact, at least one of the sources that I read for this book said that many Black church Protestants do not like to use the term evangelical anymore to describe themselves because they identify it with white Christian evangelicals who are so much in the news that they don't even identify in the same way with that theology. Now, when you were digging into this data, was there anything that surprised you, anything that jumped out that you hadn't expected that really caught you off guard? Hmm, That's an interesting question. I don't know that anything completely surprised me, but I think what disturbed me the most was I follow politics. I'm very engaged at both a local level in our home in central Pennsylvania and here in New York City. But I did not recognize the depth of the movement, that there were so many people involved, that when I was writing, half of all Americans were said to subscribe to some of these beliefs. And as of now, maybe this is good news, it's down to 29% in the latest study, but that's still almost a third of Americans overall who agree with these tenets of Christian nationalism. That I did not find myself prepared for. And the other thing that I wasn't entirely prepared for was that I really had seen this primarily as a Protestant white evangelical movement, and that there are a goodly number of Catholics who I would describe more as soft Christian nationalists. They may not agree with all of those statements, but they agree with many of them. They are more found in the Midwest as opposed to the South, where you will find that what I call the true believers. But there are many Catholics, and within those Catholics, there are a number of Latinx folks who are part of the Christian nationalist movement. So I wouldn't have expected that. But when I think about the very many different places that Latinos come from in Central and South America and the reasons that they came Were they fleeing a communist regime or were they coming here because our government, in fact, was complicit in their civil wars? So and the same is true for some Asian Americans as well. So I didn't expect to see any racial diversity much at all. And there is some, although altogether African-Americans taken as a as an ethnic group in the United States still only account for about nine or 10% of African-Americans who subscribe to this. So you also have to weight these groups because by far the largest denomination in the United States is the Southern Baptist Convention. And by far that is the group that is the most currently 
in favor of Christian nationalist ideas. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Pamela Cooper-White. She's the Christiane Brooks Johnson Professor of Psychology and Religion at Union Theological Seminary in New York. She holds PhDs from Harvard University and the Institute of Clinical Social Work. She just completed a term as academic dean at Union Seminary. She's published 10 books and over 100 scholarly articles. She's a certified pastoral psychotherapist in the Association for Clinical Pastoral Education. She is an ordained Episcopal priest and a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, Why People Are Drawn In and How to Talk Across the Divide. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're delighted to be speaking with the Reverend Dr. Pamela Cooper-White. She is the Christiane Brooks Johnson Professor of Psychology and Religion at Union Theological Seminary in New York. She holds PhDs from Harvard University and the Institute for Clinical Social Work in Chicago. She has published 10 books and over 100 scholarly articles. She's an ordained Episcopal priest and a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, Why People Are Drawn In and How to Talk Across the Divide. Well, Dr. Cooper-White, I now want to dive into another part of the title of your book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, this term, psychology. Now, my listeners may have encountered this before in a lay setting, not really knowing exactly what this term means and doesn't mean. So when you use this word psychology in the title of your book, how are you using this term? I guess to boil it down, I would say I think the study of psychology is to try to understand what makes people tick. I love that so much. And I want to now frame this notion of what makes people tick in light of your professional attainments. At several points in introducing you, I have mentioned that you are a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, and that puts you with a particular pedigree with regard to a person by the name of Sigmund Freud. And I wonder if you could briefly tell us, when you're thinking about what makes people tick, what are some of the distinct things that a psychoanalytic psychotherapist would be looking for that might be different from other types of therapists or psychologists? Well, Let me say that for this kind of research, you have to look at both sociology, which is the study of movements of people and how people form groups and become part of the workings of society. And that's more looking from the outside at what people are saying and doing. And then the more unconscious motivations of what people are driven by are what I would consider to be more the domain of psychology, even psychoanalysis. And yes, psychoanalysis, there are many different branches, of course, now, but the fundamental 
essence of psychoanalytic thinking is that there is an unconscious and that we understand very little about what motivates us compared to all of what composes our mind. And that there's actually much more unconscious royally around going on inside of us that motivates the things that we don't even understand why we do them. Well, let me take a moment and make sure that I've got this before we move on. So when we're talking about this, you said that you want to look at both the sociological aspects and then you also want to look at the unconscious or psychological aspects. Let me say it to you how I heard that and you correct me where I'm wrong. So sociological, when I hear that, I think about a big group moving in a direction towards a shelf full of toothpaste and they're all picking one type of toothpaste and not another. And I follow them and I say, if everybody else is picking this toothpaste, then it's got to be good. That's kind of me. I'm able to say, why did you pick the toothpaste? Because everybody else was picking the toothpaste. That's a conscious, group-centered motivation for why I picked the toothpaste. But also there may be aspects of something on the box of that toothpaste that triggers something from my childhood, a fond memory or something else. I might not know why I'm reaching out and grabbing the toothpaste over some other. That would be the more unconscious style where it's playing on these drives and these sorts of things that are from before I even get a chance to say why I'm deciding something. Now, these are all my words, not yours. As I say it to you this way, have I got it basically right? Or if I've got it wrong, where have I got it right? wrong? I think you have. What I would say is that the things that we study both in, and social psychology is a bridge where it's looking at sociological phenomena, but still looking at it from the conscious motivations that people have and that they could speak about themselves. They might not agree with everything that I have written in the book about what are people's conscious motivations, but in their own language, they, they probably would. Whereas the unconscious motivations, they might or might not recognize themselves in it. And on some level, that kind of psychoanalytic thinking is always, to an extent, speculative. But what makes it less speculative is that many decades of clinical observation since Freud, patient after patient has said, aha, that explains why I do this or why my relationships are always like that. And so it has explanatory power, even though it probably works more in the realm of metaphor and story than it works at the level of quantifiable science. This is one of the things that I loved the most about your book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, was that you actually, in the middle part of the book, do this kind of analytic splitting out where you're talking about conscious motivations and unconscious or subconscious motivations. And maybe we should start with some of the conscious motivations. What are some of the things that we can say a person is consciously drawing from when they decide to ally themselves with Christian nationalism or to go deeper into Christian nationalism? I identified four of these conscious motivations in the book, and I'll try to go through them concisely. One, I think a very strong one, is that people deeply need a sense of belonging. And going back to some sociological works like Robert Bella, the book Bowling Alone, people have been less likely to affiliate in civic organizations or in other places. The mall does not replace the experience of being together with a group of like-minded people or somewhat like-minded people in a church. And that is some of the purchase that megachurches had, that people who felt alienated were warmly welcomed into megachurches and megachurch-style worship 
has filtered into much, much smaller churches and more local situations. And then if you add to this sense of belonging, a good deal of rhetoric in sermon and in song about Christians needing to take America back for God, which is actually in one song that I've heard. And it's surrounded by heart-thumping rock music and all kinds of other light and sound and great production values and all of that. And people in glittery clothing and you're watching them all with awe. It can give you this sense of purpose in your life. Now you are given a moral purpose and you can engage in battle uh, with those evil people who are socialists and communists and LGBTQ and people who are destroying the morality and the moral fabric of America. So it brings people together who might never have met otherwise in this heightened sense of purpose and belonging. But underneath that, that message wouldn't land if it didn't resonate with some other things, which are fears. One is the fear of loss of white social status. And that fear is founded on a reality that the U.S. Census Bureau predicts the year 2042 as the end of white majority in the United States. And they actually made that sooner than they originally said 2050. So the United States is becoming a more and more multicultural nation. And for many of us, that would be something to celebrate. We would be very happy about the increased diversity and the enrichment of American cultural life. But for some, that is perceived as an existential threat. And so the fear of loss of white social status is something that gets addressed by this white Christian nationalist fervor for keeping America the way it was and appeals to nostalgia. The way America used to be, make America great again, Trump's motto really has appeal because what it means is make America great again for majority white Americans, especially men. But it was never so great for women and people of color. However, it appeals to the nostalgia of people who feel like they're losing the one thing they had, especially since many white Christian nationalists do not have as much economic means or educational achievement as others. And so they do feel like they're resented, especially by the Northeast or Democratic elites. And so the one thing they thought they had, whether they would say it out loud or not, is white privilege. And now that's being taken away as well. And the fear of jobs going to foreigners is a part of that. The other fear of loss is really the fear of loss of patriarchal authority of men over anybody who's not masculine, essentially. So this is reinforced in evangelical theology by the notion of male headship, that the man should be the head of the household and also the leader in public. And the recent revelations of the Southern Baptist Convention's cover-up of sexual abuse is not surprising given the tendency to protect and elevate men's rule over women and children. The Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade also relates to control over women's bodies. And another interesting part of this, I call it masculinism, actually, as well as patriarchy, because not all men who want to present themselves as traditionally masculine necessarily have authority. 
but they want to have it in the limited places in which they do. And so evangelical Christians, maybe surprisingly to some, almost half of evangelical Christians own guns versus about less than a third of mainline or liberal churches. And Black Protestants are the least gun-owning population in the United States. So the myth of the Black gun toting criminal is actually statistically the reverse because it's mostly white conservative Christians who own the most guns. And guns, of course, are a potent symbol of masculinity. Kristen Cobas Dumez has written a wonderful book called Jesus and John Wayne, where she talks about the ways in which patriarchy and masculinism have contributed to this movement of right-wing conservatism. And then finally, a fourth Conscious motivation is maybe conscious, unconscious, together, blended a bit, but the allure of conspiracy theories. If you think about the ways in which apocalyptic language in these Christian worship services, which are virtually indistinguishable sometimes from political rallies, they are creating an atmosphere of fear of the degradation of American values, fear of how America is becoming degenerate, and that the evidence for that is that increasing majority of Americans are not straight, heterosexual, white, nuclear family-oriented, and also, of course, people of color in general. So there is this paranoia that gets infiltrated into the evangelical Christian rhetoric in many places, it's not a far step then to believe other big lies that seem in that sphere to make sense, like Trump's big lie about election fraud as an excuse for voter suppression, especially of people of color. And this surprised me, you asked me what has surprised me, about half of white evangelical Protestants agree with QAnon and currently about one in six Americans overall. But within the bubble, you can think there is a term now, I learned this from Amanda Tyler at Christians Against Christian Nationalism, that is pink recruiting. And it is very soft social media productions that might be giving you a new recipe that your family will love and then talking about being a good homemaker and then suddenly talking about the tragedy of all the traffic children. Well, of course, that's a tragedy. I agree with that. But then the QAnon craziness comes in around Democrats being behind it and the deep state and truly paranoid rhetoric. But it's not that far from these other fears. And if you keep going down the slippery slope in an atmosphere that breeds paranoia, it's not that hard to understand how many people can do it. Let me make sure that I'm hearing you correctly. So a person who you would consider or classify as a Christian nationalist may not have started out as a kind of flag-waving zealot, but what I'm hearing you saying is that sometimes there can be very incremental, almost unnoticed steps that lead from what we might consider to be very reasonable initial positions into this kind of bracketed, more paranoid, more entrenched kind of mindset. Have I heard that correctly, or would you say that in a different way? Yeah, I think people are inducted. Absolutely. They are recruited and inducted. And 
I actually want to critique my use of the language Christian nationalist altogether, even though it's a handy shorthand. It's more accurate to say people who have been drawn into the movement called Christian nationalism, because in different parts of their life, they may or may not have that as the most prominent feature of the way that they live. But people who agree with those statements about taking America back for God, essentially, in my own experience, people get drawn into Christianity or church life first, and they may be attracted to a church for completely non-religious reasons. It's near where they live. A friend said they were having a really good time there and you should come. And so people do not initially start out to become Christian nationalists. They go to a church where that rhetoric is being expounded in sermon and in song, and then it gradually penetrates. And there's that togetherness that they feel. And so then why not believe it? Because it sounds so convincing and so compelling. Well, and this is actually a question that was raised for me when I was reading your book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism. I'm sure that there are some religious leaders for whom they are zealots and they are true believers in this kind of nationalist belief system that we're talking about, this kind of insular, bracketed, kind of paranoid. But it also struck me that there might be some religious leaders who, for very cynical and self-serving reasons, use this kind of rhetoric because it keeps people in seats and it keeps their churches big. Now, when I make that leap, does that seem reasonable to you, or would you want to push back against that? Well, I do think there's a difference between the leaders of the movement and the rank and file. And among the average American who subscribes to some or all of these Christian national principles, they may not have any leadership or authority or power at all, but they're identifying. And now, you know, now we're beginning to get into the unconscious motivations, but they're identifying with, with the leaders. Are the leaders cynically adopting these truths? I think some of them honestly believe it. And there's a long history of a theological strand called dominionism that was promoted by Rush Dooney and some others who believe that the end of times really is near and that it is the Christian's job to bring it about so that Jesus can make his second coming and redeem the world. I think there are certainly people who really believe that. But I also think that there is a, a very cynical desire for power. I'm not sure it's about keeping people in the pews so much as, I mean, that feeds the power of leaders in themselves. But I think it's more cynical alliances with the alt-right political machine in this country, which goes way back, and they want to be a part of it because historically it was mainline or liberal Protestant Christians who always were in the leadership positions in this country, and neither Catholics nor evangelical Protestants were favored at that time, say in the immediate post-war era and earlier. I'm old enough to remember that it was considered quite, if not a scandal, then quite a surprise that a Catholic, John F. Kennedy, could be elected president. We wouldn't think twice about that now. So Catholic and evangelical Protestant white leaders who were conservative-leaning really did make a conscious alliance. And in the book, you can read who the characters were and what they did, but it was almost like, I'll give you abortion if you'll give me 
equal time as a Protestant evangelical, and they realized coming together would be more powerful than staying separate. And so that is where a good deal of the movement of the moral majority and some other movements that have preceded our current Christian nationalist movement came from. So cynical, yes, but more about garnering power for themselves in the public arena, I think, than just also keeping their churches going. You've got somebody like Jeffress at First Dallas, First Baptist Dallas, who I think is wanting both of those things. And he is creating an empire for himself with churches all over the world now who hold the most extreme conservative views. So it can be a blend. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Pamela Cooper-White. She just completed a term as academic dean at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, where she is the Christiane Brooks Johnson Professor of Psychology and Religion. She holds PhDs from Harvard University and the Institute for Clinical Social Work, and she is the author of 10 books and over 100 scholarly articles. She's a certified pastoral psychotherapist in the Association for Clinical Pastoral Education, She's an ordained Episcopal priest and a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, Why People Are Drawn In and How to Talk Across the Divide. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find over 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Pamela Cooper-White. She just completed a term as academic dean at Union Theological Seminary in New York, where she is the Christiane Brooks Johnson Professor of Psychology and Religion. She holds PhDs from Harvard University and the Institute for Clinical Social Work, and she has published 10 books and over 100 scholarly articles. She's a certified pastoral psychotherapist in the Association for Clinical Pastoral Education. She's an ordained Episcopal priest and a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, Why People Are Drawn In and How to Talk Across the Divide. Well, before the break, we were talking about some of the conscious motivators that lead a person to become involved in Christian nationalism, both as a movement, but also as a kind of ideology. But you also are a psychotherapist, which means that you deal with the unconscious as well as the conscious. So I'd like to invite you now to walk us through what are some of the unconscious or subconscious motivators that can lead a person to become involved in Christian nationalism? Right. Well, I've already mentioned cult-like recruiting tactics, and I'll just say a couple more words about that, that this is a strategy that is also typical of evangelism in any church, which is simply moving people along from visitors to seekers to believers, although the seeker and believer language comes from conservative megachurches more. We all want to welcome people in. We all want to help them make a home wherever we are serving. That's not nefarious in and of itself, but if the aim is to begin with love bombing, to get people just feeling, oh my gosh, no one has ever loved me as much as these people love me, which then draws them into smaller groups within. In fact, in a megachurch, the seekers are the ones that are filling the pews. The small group ministry during the week is where the real 
engagement begins to happen. And if you make so many friends in a church, any church, you're more likely to stay than if you don't. Let me make sure that I'm understanding this. So in a church, a large church setting, we could consider it to be innocuous or neutral that they would move from a large group setting to a smaller group setting. Is it the combination of that movement with this ideology that makes it of concern to you? Or is that movement of itself a concern to you? I think the movement in and of itself can be for good or for ill, depending on what are the messages that are then being given in the smaller group settings and then being reinforced in the general worship services. But what happens with Christian nationalist churches is that once they get in and once they're kind of held in the love, then bombarding them with the same messages repeatedly about how the United States has become degenerate, it's lost God's favor, the only way to get God's favor back is to believe these things that we've been talking about all along. And then the use of media has become very prominent in all of this. And one of the tricky things also that is done is predicting opposition from the liberals who are vilified. And so nullifying, of course, the liberals are going to say this, but don't you listen to that because that's the devil speaking to you. So what happens when you get drawn in and then suddenly the love isn't quite so unconditional anymore and the judgment comes in and you're only loved if you perform correctly and if you say you believe correctly and you start getting involved in things that the church is doing that might be more politically motivated. So it's a slippery slope. And I say it's unconscious because truly anybody because we all have vulnerabilities. Anybody can be drawn into this kind of thing. And so it's not to blame the victim. And I actually feel a lot of empathy for people who get pulled in without having realized that they were being pulled in. And it's important to be there for people, especially if they're family members or friends or coworkers, as they begin to open their eyes and want to come out. That's not the time to just say, great, you're out, and then drop the subject that you need to support that process because it's very hard to get out of a cult. So I'm hearing you saying something that I'm going to describe as like a ratcheting process. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of attention and a lot of real affection at the beginning. And then that is slowly replaced with if you begin to pull away from us, you're going to lose all of this. So there's a fear of losing that that strong attachment. And what I'm hearing you saying is when someone comes out of that, they may need a similar kind of affection, a similar kind of care, a similar kind of attention that they had getting into it in the process of getting out of it. Or it might cause, I almost want to say like a withdrawal syndrome. Now, mm -hmm. is that too strong a word to use or am I understanding what you're saying here about the dynamics? No, I think that's right. And I, I think in addition to withdrawal, you're talking about survivor guilt, because if a person extricates themselves from a group of people that they've invested in and become close to, and now they're leaving, there are all kinds of aspects of guilt that they may feel about abandoning these people that they have left behind. But at the end of the day, they had to save themselves from it. And this is where psychoanalysis proper really comes into play is a call doesn't just form as a completely anonymous, big cloud-like group. There's always a narcissistic leader and the leader may portray him or herself. It's usually male, but not always as an almost godlike figure. And way back at the very end of World War I, 
Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, already knew from previous psychologists that there was a thing like a group think where there was a collective mind that people could sacrifice their own rational power to think to that group mind. But what Freud added to that and his important insight was that this always depends upon having a narcissistic leader who cares only about himself, but very ably conveys to the people that he loves and cares about them and he's going to save them. We just heard former President Trump at the Waco rally say, I am your redeemer and your restitution. It's an explicit statement of something that people have been saying about Trump in these circles for a long time, that he's God's anointed to, to take this country back. And he played with it. I think he, I can't speak to what his personal real faith is, but when he stood in front of St. John's Church holding the Bible in his hand, he did something that many of these clever politicians do, which is to align their politics with a display of religiosity that makes them even more convincing to a certain group of people who are ready to just have, please tell me what's right and wrong. Please tell me what's true and what's not. I don't want the gray zones. I want to know absolutely what to do and what to believe. And so this blending of religiosity with political leadership can be in the person's own self-image or it can be completely cynical. But what happens then, according to Freud, is that all of us have a conscience or a superego. We hand it over in our minds to that leader to tell us now what's right and wrong. And we don't have that burden of having to figure it out for ourselves. And this is all unconscious. I'm not going to one day say, I am giving my superego over to this father figure over here who is so-and-so. It happens because the group is already doing it and you get sucked into that group. And then pretty soon you no longer have your own rational thinking power. We say you regress. You become more childlike in the presence of this group. And in fact, people will do things in the group that on another occasion they wouldn't do as individuals even now. But when they're in the group, they are caught up in the group persuasion. And I think that's part of what we saw on January 6th. Now, listeners, if you're intrigued by the analysis that Dr. Cooper White is giving to us right now, I want to stress to you that her book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, takes this and goes deeper at every single point, explaining and showing the connections. So if you like the 30,000-foot view we're giving to you here, you'll really enjoy going deep in this book as you read it. But I want to switch directions slightly here, because in the final part of the book, you begin to talk about how we can start to talk across these divides. And one of the things that I found so helpful from that analysis and those suggestions was the simple fact that sometimes we can't talk across these divides, and we, we need to learn to begin to analyze the possibility of persuasion in these various conversations and relationships we have. And you use a really helpful tool. You imagine like a traffic light. There's a red light, a yellow light, and a green light. I wonder if you would break that out for me and my listeners and explain how we can use that metaphor of the traffic light to help us understand when it's profitable to try and engage in these kinds of conversations and when we should best leave alone and avoid them. Right. Many psychologists who've written about this kind of phenomenon 
say there is no talking once someone has completely gone down the rabbit hole. And I, you know, I'm a therapist. I don't agree that there is never any talking. I think it depends on how firmly the person is entrenched and what your relationship is with them. And I always ask first, this is a triage of how you would approach or not approach is, okay, am I the right person to be talking to this person? Because sometimes someone else who's in the movement or has been in the movement or in the movement and questioning it might be a better person to talk to them than someone that they know to be a progressive Christian, both theologically and politically. I might not be that right person, even for someone in my family. Is it the right place? Are you doing this in a place that's going to expose people to shame or calling them out in a way that humiliates them? And is it the right time? If somebody just went through a major grief or an illness or you're you're going through something together as a family, this is probably not the, the right time to bring up a major political point or a political debate. So right person, right place, right time is the first thing to think about. And sometimes right there, you're just going to say, stop, this is not good. And sometimes you're going to engage in a conversation and realize this is becoming really toxic and argumentative and it's not going to help either of us. And you certainly don't want to put yourself in the position of being the target for micro or macro aggressions. And particularly, you need to be in, in mind also of, is this a cross-cultural conversation? Is this a conversation among people from different religious backgrounds? How are the cultural context pieces also impacting the way this, what you say is going to land regardless of what you mean? So that's the red light. The yellow light is where you sense some openness and you judge that you might be the right person in the right place at the right time. And what I say there is that we have to listen more than we talk. Paradoxically, the more we harangue somebody or argue with somebody or try to get a point across, the less they're going to be imp impressed with what we have to say. The more we can try to empathically understand where they're coming from, what is it like to live their life? What are the things that have caused them to believe as they believe? Then we have to listen more than we talk. And argumentation does not work, period. That's one of the biggest points I want to make in the book. Listening, empathizing, and then making I statements, which is the letter I. Well, I have come to believe something a little bit different. May I share that with you? This is what I think. and. See if you can get a dialogue going in that way. And something that Loretta Ross, who is this beautiful African-American activist who just won a MacArthur Genius Award for her work on, well, reproductive rights for one thing, but also working in civil rights movement. And she has written a book that's about to come out about calling in instead of calling out. So to resist the temptation of... If you're in a setting with other people and you pounce on somebody for saying something that you find offensive, and it may well be offensive, but if you humiliate them publicly, and this is something that is their ignorance or honest mistake, humiliating them is not going to make them more inclined to listen to what you have to say, but it's going to make them more defensive and resistant. Whereas she talks about calling in, which is Draw the person aside, make an I statement, say, I found that statement that you made hurtful or problematic, and let me tell you why. 
and then have a conversation about it. She reserves calling out or what she calls calling up for when we do need to get out on the streets and demonstrate and protest and call up those people who are truly in power and authority whose decisions are harming people on the ground. And then with the green light, calling in is part of the green light. And then I think, first of all, you have to build and maintain relationship before you're going to get a green light to have a really honest, in-depth kind of dialogue with somebody. You can find common ground with them because surely there are some values that you hold in common. There are basic human moral values that you can agree upon. And then to exercise respect and kindness. You can't heal them. You can't cure them. You can't make them think the right thing because that's very condescending and nobody's going to appreciate that. But if you really begin with the listening and the relationship building, maybe even planting seeds by the end of that time that, wow, this person really listened to me. And maybe she's not somebody with two horns and a tail. Maybe she's got something to say. And then they begin to question inside themselves. And you might not even know at the end of the day what the impact is that you've made. So I really like what you've just lined out for us. And one of the things that I hear ringing out in all of these, the red, the yellow and the green, is it's not your job to fix the other person. But I want to now flip the script a little bit because it is pretty clear that a Christian nationalist has been trained to think that there's something wrong with me as an interlocutor and that there's something wrong that needs to be fixed with me. How do I respond gently when someone enters a conversation with me intending to point out where I am a child of the devil with two horns and a cape, as you just said? How do I protect or preserve my own integrity and identity when someone is entering in with that kind of agenda? Yeah, that's really important. I'm glad that you asked that because We also, if we're totally frustrated and we know that we're not going to be able to have any kind of an honest dialogue with a person that might be open to to change, and at least theoretically, we should both be open to change or open at least to hearing each other and respecting the point of view, which is very hard. Sometimes you have to clench your teeth. But when you know that you're not going to be able to change this person, sometimes it's best to leave it alone. That's the red light. And sometimes where do you channel that frustration and that energy? Because you still want the system to change. And you really believe that Christian nationalism, as I do, is both dangerously anti-democratic and it's a distortion of everything in the Hebrew Bible and the Christian message, especially the teachings of Jesus and the Gospels. It's a true distortion of religion. How do you sit with that without doing something? And that's where I think that you have to channel your energy into educational work and into protest and write op-eds, for example, because especially an op-ed in a local paper is going to be read much more often than somebody who's already decided the New York Times is fake news. They're not going to read it. They're not going to read the Chicago Tribune. They're going to read their local neighborhood paper because their grandson just won a soccer award or somebody was in a play, the community theater, or they want to know something more about their town government. And so actually that's the arena where a lot of things are happening these days at school boards and in city councils. 
the opposition to critical race theory and in the term intersectionality, which many people don't even really understand what these things are, banning books. You can have more impact if you write an op-ed at that local level where a lot of the grassroots organizing is happening on both the left and the right. And put yourself forward. And actually, Christians Against Christian Nationalism, an organization I've mentioned before, will help you. They have a template for writing op-eds. And if you're willing to put yourself out there, they will help you. Well, Dr. Pamela Cooper-White, your book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, was probably my favorite kind of book. And let me explain what I mean by that, because it was incredibly detailed, but so fun and easy to read. And I, by fun, I mean, like, you you gave me enough of the personal as well as the procedural so that I was able to be engaged with all of my senses throughout the whole of reading it, I learned so much. And I just want to say how grateful I am that you took the time to research and write this book. Thank you especially for taking the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for your great questions. We've been speaking today with Dr. Pamela Cooper-White. She is the Christiane Brooks Johnson Professor of Psychology and Religion at Union Theological Seminary in New York, where she just completed a term as academic dean. She's published 10 books and over 100 scholarly articles. She's a certified pastoral psychotherapist in the Association for Clinical Pastoral Education. She's an ordained Episcopal priest and a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, Why People Are Drawn In and How to Talk Across the Divide. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.